Thanks for visiting studiolighting.net. You're listening to Light Source. Hey, and welcome to episode 26 of Light Source, the official podcast of studiolighting.net, the website that introduces photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer and image inspector with iStockphoto.com. On today's episode, we have with us Joe Edelman, a commercial portrait editorial photographer, who uh, in his interview says about 80% of his clientele is made up of doing modeling portfolios. And he has a, a bit of a different spin on it than I think what typical photographers offer. I know that it's it's different than what I offer models that I work with and um, has some really interesting insight into the business of uh, working with models. So that's going to be really interesting to listen to. It's, it was certainly um, had my head spinning through the interview. I think you said that too, Bill. Yep. Uh, before we get into that, I believe you said we have a new member of the team here at StudioLighting.net to introduce. Yeah, I just wanted to take a minute to uh, introduce Chris Malineo, uh, the newest member of the StudioLighting.net news team. Um, if you haven't had a chance to visit StudioLighting.net for some photography and lighting news, we've definitely beefed things up over there, and it's worth taking a trip over and checking out. Subscribe to the RSS feed, and I'm sure that you'll be able to stay on top of some things. So welcome, Chris. Yes, Welcome. I guess news isn't really too uh, too big now that Photokina has ended. Um, however, Photo Plus Expo, the photography and design conference, is going to be November 2nd and 4th in New York City at the Jacob Javits Center. And uh, we're actually going to be on hand. Yeah, I'm excited about that. We're going to both be there together hanging out and checking out some of the booths and talking to some of the folks about products and lighting equipment and all that fun stuff and you uh, actually have a speaking engagement don't you yeah i had a i had an interesting uh, request from uh from P- the folks at pdn i'm going to be speaking on a panel about microstock and other burning issues in in the industry and we're going to be talking about image licensing models and so we'll have uh, some producers distributors customers on the panel and uh, should be some interesting uh, q a from the audience yeah, absolutely. So any, if any of our listeners are planning to be at the Photo Plus Expo, definitely check out Ed's panel discussion. What time is that, Ed? What day is that? Uh, it's going to be Friday, November 3rd. Um, uh, I'll be on at 11.30 a.m., and it'll go for an hour. That's great. Also, we thought it might be an opportunity for us to meet some of our fans. So if you're going to be at that show... We have fans? Uh, no, but, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> If you are going to be at that show, head on over to the Flickr Light Source group and let us know, and maybe we can figure something out in terms of meeting some of you guys. Yeah, it'd be so. cool to arrange like a meet and greet if there's going to be enough people that'd be interested in it. Yeah, so we'll make a post in the Flickr group and see if we get any response. Speaking of response, I, I can't imagine anyone want to talk to us. <laughs> well, you know, we got a little insight into that, Ed. We've been asking folks to fill out our listener survey, and by the way, if you haven't done that, please. Go ahead and do that for us. It's it's really, really helpful for a lot of different reasons. But we, we got to pour through some of the uh, comments that people left on their I, I took it five and, times. You took the survey five times? <laughs> well, good. You're helping us out, Ed. Oh, good. Well, the, the listeners had a lot to say. I, I was really excited to read through it. And the likes and the dislikes were, were equally as helpful, I think. Particularly some of the dislikes, I thought. I was going to say, we logged those IP addresses so we can go get those guys, right? Yeah, 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 actually. We're we're out we're looking for the folks that said we sound like the Saturday Night Live skits about NPR. <laughs> yeah, good time. 
Good times. Good times. Anyway, we appreciate you guys filling out the survey. I, I guess the biggest thing that came through was that people wish we did this more often. Once a week. Once a week? I don't get enough time to shoot as it is. I know. We'd be uh, we'd be talking <laughs> on the microphone all the time and never out there with our cameras. So. I need a photography life too, man. <laughs> but anyway, it was really great to hear from our fans, and we... Uh, We'll do our best to keep up on that and try to continually improve the show. So thanks if you filled it out. And if you didn't, um, please check out the link on the show notes and the links that we put in the Flickr light source group and head over and fill it out for us. And we're going to try to get all six of those fans on the show someday too. So <laughs> <That's great. right>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on our last show, we talked with uh, Paul Buff about the Alien B ring flash. And if you haven't been checking out studiolighting.net, uh, did something a little interesting this time with the when we've actually gotten to talk about a product. We did a full review on it. Yeah, we, and, uh, and Bill and I spent some time in the basement studio here, just kind of like measuring everything that we could about it, and think of anything that you guys would probably want to know about this light. We've gotten a good response from it so far. Yeah, it seems like we've succeeded in, in putting up a useful resource. If you're interested in that ring light at all, you definitely want to head over to studiolighting.net and check out our product review for the ABR 800. We actually have one and we're playing with it. So we're going to be adding to that review as we, you know, find out new little nuances or, or have some cool sample photos to put up. So uh, check that review out if you enjoyed last episode. Yeah, I've been trying some different stuff with it. I've been using it as a key light, fill-in light, and, you know, just some different stuff. And it's, I think it's pretty versatile. Yeah, and we'll see what what we can do in terms of getting our hands on some of the light modifiers as they come out from Paul Buff and his gang as well. I'm kind of excited about playing with different modifiers with it. And I've been able to, in my studio, rig it up as a, a, a normal strobe too, just as another light source, bounce it into an umbrella and that sort of thing. So oh, and we're having a good time. And speaking of that, um, I talked to my dad this evening, and he said that he's not going to have any problem to, to make that bracket for that top secret project you were talking about so oh cool well yeah. if we get that going we'll let our listeners in on that too so. <laughs> uh let's see before we get into the interview um and it's it's a long one so we don't want to take up too much of the time here but uh we do have something rather funny that we we stumbled across here while we were trying to come up with stuff for the show it's a new cartoon that's out there for uh for photographers bill and i have just been like laughing hysterically here it's called What the Duck. It's at whattheduck.net. Uh, the artist, Aaron Johnson, bills himself as 40% photographer, 60% photoshopper. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it follows the tale of his uh, photographers that are ducks. They run into a lot of the same dilemmas that it seems like, well, I can completely relate to a lot of these. Oh, me too. It's, <laughs> I've been laughing out loud a lot tonight. Just reading through some of the archives, it's kind of a Dilbert style thing in their professional photography anecdotal situation. So it's a good laugh. You got to head over and check that out. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's cool stuff. So um, that's whattheduck.net, right? Yes. And before we get into the interview, we might as well give Joe Edelman's URL as well. So you can head on over to there while you listen. You can check out his website at J-O-E-E-D-E-L-M-A-N.com. I 
and we have with us this evening Joe Edelman, an award-winning photographer, does a lot of editorial, corporate, and advertising work, uh, primarily known for his work with people. Work of his can be seen in Shape Magazine, Cosmopolitan, Maxim, um, and a lot of other sources as well. It's exciting to have you on the show, Joe. It's uh, talked with you over email and been to your site a number of times. It's good to actually speak with you. Well, thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I appreciate your having me. So how did you get started with photography? Wow, if you're going to go back that far, I got started with <laughs> photography to really annoy the heck out of my parents, literally. I was 11 years old, you know, way back when I had a deal with my parents for Christmas and birthdays that I could pick out kind of like one big present, and Christmas was coming, the Sears uh, catalog showed up, and I happened to be flipping through it, and they had these really cool cameras. In fact, uh, it was a German camera, Tanamex Practica Nova 1B. Nice. Uh, in 1974, uh, three, something like that. It was all $79. And I took this to my parents and said, this is it. This is what I want for Christmas. <laughs> and they both looked at me and said, absolutely not. No way. You're not getting it. Forget it. Pick something else. And I threw a fit and said, wait a minute. You can't change the rules. And they said, no, you're one of those kids that starts a hobby and never finishes it. You're not getting the camera. <laughs> and said, I went, went whining to my father and said, hey, come on. And he said, look, you're not getting it. Forget it. But you're saving money to go buy a mini bike. So if you want the camera that bad, go buy the camera. So I did. Never got the mini bike. <laughs> Still have a lot of cameras. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I just always had a fascination with it. My parents had, you know, the old 8mm movie camera, which they would never let me touch, which really frustrated me. But I always thought it was really cool. And uh, I got this camera. And, and by the time I got through, like, my probably my fifth roll of black and white film, I was just absolutely hooked. And then just kind of by dumb luck, I had my first picture published in a newspaper when I was 14. Wow. Came home from school that day. Didn't know it was going to be in the newspaper. Came home from school that day, and it was on the front page and down in the bottom corner. You know, as a 14-year-old might think, I see the picture, which is really cool. Underneath the picture was my name, which is really cool. And then up in the top of the newspaper where the masthead is, it says, serving 22,000 readers daily. So, of course, <laughs> my 14-year-old mind is, hey, 22,000 people just read that I took that picture like they really <laughs> cared, you know. But, uh, but, yeah, I'll admit, at that point, I was hooked. There was no turning back. That was it. So when did you start shooting people? Well, I, I guess I really kind of always shot people. Uh, I mean, I started my career in photojournalism. I was, uh, I was absolutely going to win a Pulitzer by the time I was 25. I will save you the research. I didn't win the Pulitzer by the time I was 25. <laughs> uh, but that was my goal. I mean, I was very focused. I was determined. Uh, in fact, at that point in my life, the idea of doing studio photography was well beneath me. It just was not real photography in my mind. You know, so obviously newspaper work, 99.9% .9 of what you're doing is you're dealing with people and interacting with people and photographing people. And really just through, you know, kind of some of those odd twists of fate that life takes us through. Um, in my mid-20s, I, I wound up starting to do some studio work and just by another odd twist of fate, wound up doing uh, a fashion project for uh, a designer and got really hooked on that. You know, it just kind of all escalated from there. And then I actually wound up taking about 10-year break from this business. Huh. Um, never really thought that I would come back to it. Like a lot of people have done that started that long ago, kind of had gotten very burned out in the business, you know, really looked for something else. And I had always worked in and around advertising and marketing once I got out of the newspaper industry. So I stayed very involved in advertising and marketing and kind of watched the digital revolution begin. I was very involved in internet technologies, which is kind of what has helped me with my marketing now and, and my own website, which I build myself. But when Nikon came out with their first D1, um, I was fortunate enough to have a little bit of money saved. So I decided to buy one. 
quickly panicked and realized that I had bought a computer with a lens. <laughs> had no clue what to do things. And, you know, again, those little twists of fate that life takes, I, uh, I ran into a guy that I'd worked with at a newspaper 20 years prior, and he was working for a uh, paper here in Pennsylvania called the Allentown Morning Call, which is the third largest newspaper in the state, and they were desperate for some stringers. I told them they must be really desperate if they're, you know, looking to have me shoot at this point. So first assignment they gave me was a dog show on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, I was there for 20 minutes, and I knew that I was going to walk into my work the next Monday and quit my job, which I did. No kidding. Um, and, you know, the rest is kind of history. When I started doing, you know, the modeling work and the corporate work and all that kind of stuff, I just knew that I wanted to take a very different approach to it than I had the first time around. Uh, and that's really kind of where all the modeling materials have come from. And that actually equates to about 85% of my income at this point is, is simply doing modeling portfolios because I do it very different than everybody else does. And then the rest of it, I kind of, you know, I get to amuse myself with doing some corporate work here and a little bit of editorial work there. And, you know, every now and then for some odd reason, people will actually contact me and ask me to photograph a product, which I can never quite figure out why, but they do. And that's cool because it's different and it's, you know, a new challenge. Right. So I, I'm just, uh, I'm thrilled to, to be having fun. I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like you've been at it for quite a long time to, uh, to not know what you want to do when you grow up. But I guess that's the beauty of the creative business. It absolutely is. It, it very much is. And I guess it, for me, by dumb luck, because I, I certainly can't take any credit for the master plan, but that was kind of the beauty of having walked away from the business and then coming back. I know now that what I appreciate and what I love about what I do is really the interaction with people because everything I do, it's all about people. I get to walk into other people's worlds for, you know, figuratively 10 minutes at a time and experience it firsthand and be a part of it. And then I get to go back to my own world, which is just, it's a fascinating, people to me are fascinating and being able to have the opportunity to be creative and, and have some fun with it. You know, it's great. So where that will take me, will it always be modeling? Will it wind up being material? I have no idea. You know, we'll, we'll see where the opportunities go. And, and in the meantime, just keep having fun. That's a great attitude. Now, when someone visits your website, it's very clear that you just have an excellent resource for models and you work with models a lot. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that you do things a lot differently. Could you tell us what you were hinting to there? Well, sure. And, you know, still today, I mean, even after, you know, 20 some years that I've dabbled with modeling portfolios and that kind of stuff, you know, give or take, photographers for the most part, and I don't mean this in a bad way towards photographers, because unfortunately, modeling agencies actually tend to reward them for this. But photographers, for the most part, still tend to create modeling portfolios that are basically a collection of pretty pictures of a pretty girl. And, you know, there's some harsh realities in the modeling uh, arena. I hesitate to use the word modeling business because there is no business called modeling, contrary to what the modeling schools of the world would like you to think. The business is advertising. Right. And the problem that you run into is you wind up with a pretty girl with pretty pictures. And if you look at nine out of 10 modeling portfolios that come off the street, what you'll find is oftentimes amazing pictures, incredibly creative pictures, pictures that I look at and say, oh my God, that is amazing. But when I actually look at the girl, I can go through 10, 15, 20 pictures and I get really bored because what I wind up seeing is one or two expressions because the girl is either, you know, really happy and very kind of commercial looking or she's all about being hot and sexy. So she's got that come hither look with the starry eyes <laughs> and, and it really doesn't show me much. It doesn't tell me a story. It doesn't show me what kind of characters this girl can portray. It doesn't show me how she's going to fit into advertising. It doesn't tell me anything that helps me, if I'm an advertiser, 
It doesn't tell me anything that helps me make a judgment about, is this the person to market my product? Because, you know, modeling is not about being pretty. And everybody always raises an eyebrow when I say that. But I stand by that. Pretty people are a dime a dozen. We'll go to East Japip, Kansas, find the smallest shopping mall possible, sit on a bench for half an hour on a Monday morning at 11 o'clock. And in 10 minutes or 30 minutes, I'll find any height, weight, body type, hair color, skin color, race, ethnicity, you name it, it's there. Modeling agencies are not desperate for pretty people. There's a little bit of a safe assumption that we can make about modeling. If you're not attractive, duh, what are you doing? <laughs> okay? So, you know, really what it came down to is, wait a minute, what is a portfolio really for? A portfolio is a marketing tool. Okay. Marketing, advertising, let's think about what it has to do. What does it have to accomplish? It has to convince people that a model is capable of doing what? Well, models are not hired to be pretty. They're actually hired to act. You know, you generally don't see pictures where the model's standing, looking at the camera, smiling, unless it's in the back of magazines like Maxim Networks, those really cheesy black and white ads of the girl in the bikini holding the pill bottle with the male enhancement drugs, you know, and she's smiling. <laughs> That's the only time you see that, okay? Otherwise, the person's hired to act portray character, interact with a product, pretend they're having fun doing something. That's what modeling is. So the portfolio needs to show their ability to do that. Plus, if you, if you think the whole process through, which people tend to not do, when a model walks into an agency to show her portfolio, more importantly, when a model walks into a client's office and shows her portfolio, she's standing right there holding the book. So unless the person that's responsible for hiring the model or signing the model is blind, they can see that she's pretty. They can see that she has a good figure. They don't really need more than one or two pictures to confirm that fact. And let's face it, if they've been in the business any period of time, they don't need the pictures at all because they can look at the girl and say, yeah, she's beautiful, she's photogenic, whatever. Okay? So we don't need a portfolio full of pretty pictures to make, you know, convince us that the girl's pretty. The portfolio's got to tell a story. But the story's not about the girl. Because when it really comes down to it in reality, nobody cares about the girl. I mean, if you think about the marketing and the advertising process, and if you've ever worked with a client and they've used models for jobs, you quickly realize the model, 90% of the time, is the last piece of the puzzle. She's the last one hired. Right. By the time she's hired, the ad campaign's already designed. Oftentimes, it's sketched out and laid out, and they even know exactly how she's got to pose and how she's got to hold something and which way she's got to look. Okay? So... People really aren't, you know, looking to hire the model because she's got a great sense of style and the way she dresses or, you know, because she has really good choice in the way she wears her hair or that kind of stuff. They're looking at her as a character. So that portfolio has got to tell a story that she is in, but it's not about her. All the while we're doing that, however, we have to make her look amazing in each of these characters, okay? So I literally, when a model comes to me, they basically pay me for two things. They pay me to shoot their portfolio. That's the obvious part. I take pictures. But yeah, you know, so do a lot of people. And a lot of people take pictures a lot better than what I do. But I also help them develop a marketing plan so that the pictures that we shoot are going to advertise them and market them in a way that relates to the market, the geographic market that they're going to try and work in. Right. So I have to do a little bit of research. First thing we have to do is we have to look up some of the advertising demographics in their market and find out you know, what kind of market is it. Here in Philadelphia, as an example, fourth largest advertising market in the United States. Wow. That's a big plus. It's a healthy place to work. There's a lot of work here. But if you look at it demographically in terms of the advertising generated here, it is corporate, middle-aged, yuppie, and overwhelmingly female in buying power. 
So, you know, we take that information, and obviously if we're looking at, you know, trying to market a 19-year-old, we know, okay, this person's starting on the young end of the market. So we have to make sure that we're trying to target as much specific as we can to the little bit of work that's going to be available for her in a market like this, et cetera. Because contrary to the old wife tales, a person starting modeling, actually I talked to two women today, one was 37, the other was 34. They're both considering getting into modeling, and both of them started out their conversations with me saying, you know, I know I'm probably too old, but I just thought it would be really cool. And my first response is, you know, forget this too old stuff because you're not. Right. Both of them are actually right smack in the middle of the age demographics for their markets. The busiest print models in Philadelphia are in their early 30s and late 20s. They're not kids. Right. And even in the fashion world, that's changing too. People are getting older. So my difference is marketing. I apologize for the long answer to a short question. <laughs> Basically, we build a marketing plan around the girl. And essentially, I walk into the studio with a portfolio completely planned out. I don't give the girl a bunch of guidelines like, ah, don't wear white, don't wear V-necks, bring a bunch of clothes. <laughs> oh, no. We go through a three-week planning process that includes a practice shoot before the actual shoot. They walk into the studio. I've known for a full week before they show up. Every piece of clothing that they're bringing, the color, the style, the cuts, I know the shoes. Wow. I know during that week, because I do my pre-planning, what kind of background I'm going to use. If it's a digital background that I'm going to drop in, I've already selected the image so that I know how to light them and how to pose them. I know what kind of lighting I want to use. I sent that list off to the makeup artist that I've hired so that she knows in advance what my color schemes are. She sees pictures of the girl without makeup in advance. It's all preparation. So we go into the studio. It's essentially, it's no different than you would do a commercial job. You go in with a shot list, the images are planned out, and you execute the job. So the creativity comes in the planning. You know, the shoot itself is execution. That's, that's terrific. That's a lot of really great information. From a photographer's perspective, mm -hmm. could you give us an idea of what makes a good portfolio? There's so many different things that you could do to try to bring out a personality right. and connect with this person. Right. What, what's sort of the game plan there for, from a photographer's perspective? All right, well, if we start at 50,000 feet and we work our way down, uh, a good portfolio is one that tells a story. Again, not to repeat myself, but it tells the story of what the girl can be. So it has to show ranges. It's got to show a range of age. How young can she look? How old can she look? And when I say that, we have to be convincing, okay? Just to dress, you know, a young girl up in something that's older and mature because you can, you know, doesn't work. We have to show ranges of emotions and expressions. Mm. I can't tell you how many, if I'm doing a go-see with a client and, and we're auditioning girls, I can't tell you how many times a girl comes in, she puts down a book with 25 pictures, or 20, excuse me, 24 pictures, which is way too many to begin with, uh, unless they've been working for ages, okay? And I go through the book and I, I can count up like all of three, maybe four expressions out of 24 <laughs> pictures. Why? And a lot of times, I hate to say it, but it's even worse. I go through the book and there's one or two. There's like smile and serious, done. So it's got to show that range of expressions. It's got to show the range of emotions. And most importantly, it's got to show characters. Give an example. Philadelphia market, since that's where I'm based and since you guys are nearby, every modeling portfolio I do for a girl at ages 18 and up, unless she looks extremely young, but for the most part, any girl at ages 18 and up in Philadelphia, we do a photograph of that girl as a nurse or as a doctor or as a pharmaceutical tech. Why? Well, okay, let's look at the advertising demographics. Philadelphia is home to three of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, the Philadelphia area, three of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, seven major hospital networks, two major health insurance companies, tons of medical equipment manufacturing companies, 
it is indeed the largest medical market from an advertising standpoint in the United States. So it's actually more important in the Philadelphia advertising market to have a picture of yourself in a medically related image as opposed to having a picture of yourself in a bathing suit. Because let's face it, people don't come to Philadelphia to shoot swimwear catalogs. <laughs> That's so, a good point. <laughs> and hopefully the background that you guys are kind of getting, like, you know, I'm saying kind of this, some of this stuff, and just like your reaction, kind of the light bulb goes off. It's like, oh, well, you know, that makes sense. This isn't really rocket science. But if you notice, all the stuff I'm talking about, you're asking me a question about modeling portfolios. I'm answering you in a question about advertising. So the answer to these questions is not to look at the pretty girl. Hey, I get it. You know, I got a great job. I get to photograph pretty women all the time. I'm incredibly lucky because I have a wife that respects my work and thinks it's wonderful. But the answer to what you have to do is you have to be looking at advertising because in advertising lies all the answers to what you need to do with a model. So literally in terms of you know, what makes a good portfolio, it's the story that shows lots of range and it's got to show the characters that most apply to the market. You know, how do you get there? Part of what I mentioned before, it's understanding a little bit about what is the demographic of the market that the girl intends to work in. little side note based on that statement, one of the mistakes a lot of people will make and a lot of photographers will help perpetrate innocently, okay, is, you know, everybody knows New York is the fashion capital of the world. It's where it all happens. So, you know, a young girl in Kansas will decide, I want to do pictures and I'm going to send it to New York and I'm going to hope that Ford or Wilhelmina or IMG are going to sign me and, you know, whisk me off and there I go. It doesn't work that way. If you're going to submit to an agency in a city other than where you live, you have to be prepared to travel there at your own expense at the drop of a hat whenever they want you. <laughs> in other words, it's not practical. So you model where you live, period. You've got to be where the work is. The one luxury that people in the Philadelphia area have is you have a fairly close to New York, and there's a little bit of overlap. But for the most part, if you live in Philly, you model in Philly. So we do the demographic research. We understand what the market needs. You know, we, we plan out ideas based on the way the girl looks because the girl's look is going to determine you know, where she fits. And that's oftentimes where there's a disconnect. People sometimes have a slightly different perception of themselves and what everybody else sees. And the other harsh reality about advertising is that everything in advertising is about stereotypes and icons. So, you know, if you're going to have success as a model, we have to determine can we fit, you know, the square peg into the round hole. If we can't, it doesn't work. Because in the sense of commercial modeling, especially, which just for clarification, that's really what I do. I'm not a fashion photographer. I will be the first to raise my hand in shame and admit that I'm horrible at fashion. Not my thing. I'm definitely a commercial photographer, and I do commercial-type images. Uh, and if you notice, even like on my website where it has the girls' heights and all their stats, you see very, very few girls are over the height of 5'8 on my website because if a girl's smart and she wants to be a fashion model, she's not going to shoot with Joe Edelman. Okay? <laughs> um, so you know, this, this whole approach, it's really based on the idea of, of figure out where this girl fits in the market, create images that tell the story. And, and the, really, the only part that applies to the girl, like actually one of you guys, I don't know which one made the comment a minute ago about how do you bring out the personality. It's not really her personality we're trying to bring out. I use her personality wherever possible. Right. Obviously, you know, that makes the job a lot easier. If the girl happens to have some acting background or she happens to be a natural actress or she just happens to be one of those people that has, you know, those incredible outgoing, bubbly personalities that light up a room when she walks in, of course you use that to her advantage and to your advantage when shooting. But modeling is acting. So there are a lot of tricks, there are a lot of gimmicks, and there's really no reality to what we're creating. The only reality is showing what the girl's capable of doing. Everything else is fantasy. So. Now, when you're saying about like 85% of your portfolio is model work, 
do you find yeah. that those people are coming to you as people looking to get into the agency or, or getting into the modeling world, or are they people who are established just trying to refresh their portfolios or things like that? It's both. I would have to say that the, the overwhelming majority are, are new beginners. That's cool. If somebody contacts me and uh, asks for pricing information in that one, I, I send back a little form email that I have that directs them to where they can download information and all that kind of stuff. My entire sales pitch fits into one sentence. Sales pitch is really easy. All the barrels that you see on my website, there's a lot of them. They've all come here. They've paid the money. They've gone through the process, and they've gone home with two things. As I mentioned, yeah, I take nice pictures, but more importantly, I give them a marketing plan. They've all made their money back, every single one of them. And, you know, the first thing I tell anybody that inquires about this business is understand that for a girl getting into modeling or a guy, you're selecting or you're considering entering an industry where even the most successful people have failed many, many more times than they have succeeded. Right. So you have to understand it's a business where, you know, the odds are greatly stacked against you. And that's where my marketing begins is right at that point, because just like any other business, that means you do your due diligence before you start your business so that you understand your market, you understand the obstacles that you face in entering that business, and you prepare for them so that you have the right marketing tools and the right answers so that you can eliminate the obstacles. You do all the same things that you would do, you learn it, you know, business one-on-one course in school. That's really how you start modeling because ironically, you know, this whole modeling thing and part of advertising, it, it's very antiquated. You know, modeling hasn't changed much in the last 50 years and even with the internet and all this technology, which I am, you know, a number one fan, modeling's not gonna change much in the next 50 years. You know, it's very basic in its purpose. Uh, and the way it works and the way the selection is made and everything else, yeah, technology is being used to make some of it easier, more efficient, but it's not changing the way it works, contrary to what you would believe by some of these websites that you see out there. He's so, not talking you know, about it, ours, is he, Bill? No, 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 don't worry. You guys are sick. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm talking about some of these, these model listing websites, which will go unnamed. Uh, which do serve a great purpose. I don't want to make it sound like they're bad, but unfortunately, a lot of people innocently kind of get involved in those things, thinking that things are going to happen that, that never do happen. Actually, since we're talking about those, one thing that I've seen a lot of discussion about on some of these forums on those on certain sites is TFP and TFCD and whether they think that is harmful to yeah. the model business or photography business, yeah. I should say. Well, of course it's harmful to the photography business, but... You can't blame that on the photography business. I mean, if you guys talk to anybody that's been in this business for, you know, 10, 15 years, and maybe you have to give them a drink to really get them going. <laughs> but once you get them going, you're going to hear them start complaining and whining and griping, rightfully so. It's darn near impossible to make a living the way you used to. And, you know, TFP, TFCD, all that kind of stuff, that's just one example of how it's difficult. But really what it is, it's Technology is why it's hard for photographers to make a living today. Oh, yeah. Because it used to be that, you know, if you go back 20 years ago, but like back when I started, back in the, those good old days when, you know, everything was film and chemicals and paper and there was no, you know, Photoshop and all that stuff, you know, it was a skill that very few people had. And it was a skill that took a long time to hone and to develop. And not anybody could just pick up a camera and take a good picture. You know, just the difference between the 35-millimeter camera and the, the Kodak, was it 110 and 126 cameras? You know, just the film quality was dramatically different. So you had a situation where, as a photographer, you carried a skill set that the average person could not even dream of replicating. 
Well, you know, technology got better. And even before computers came along, technology got better. Film got better. You know, the reciprocity values, the exposure compensation values of film grew to the point that you could over and underexpose film by as much as three stops and still get a great print out of it. So the technology gets better. Digital comes along. Everybody's got a digital camera now. If they don't have a digital camera, they've got a cell phone with a camera in it. You know, everybody <laughs> can take a picture and, and take a half-decent picture. So what happens is, and this has nothing to do with photography, this is, you know, the good old American economic system of supply and demand. And along with supply and demand, when you learn about that in school, think way back, guys, you know, when you did the whole financial thing, you learned about perceived value. So the problem that you have today is the perceived value of what we do as photographers is much, much lower because the perception is anybody can do that. And since you're mentioning, you know, these sites that, you know, do the TFP and the TFCD and all that, you know, one of the other phrases that you didn't mention, but you also read about on these sites, I believe it's GWC, guy with a camera, <laughs> okay? Well, any guy with a camera can pick up a camera, and he's, you know, as you also know on a lot of these sites, and it's very clear from the pictures and the postings that are there, these GWCs have figured out, hey, buy an expensive camera, get a pretty girl to pose for me. Right. Cool deal. So, you know, what you have is this perception. And you also have, you know, for you hear me talking about people paying to do a modeling portfolio. I'm not cheap. But at the same time, you'll find 50 times the amount of resources of me saying, never pay for a portfolio. Do TFP. Well, I just have a simple response to it, literally. You get what you pay for. Right. Bottom line. And you do. You know, and you look at the, the portfolios of a lot of these girls that have gone out and done these TFPs in it. Some of them have some killer images, awesome images. But if you look at their collection and what it tells you about that girl's ability to be a model, I guarantee you 99.9% .9 of the time, all it's going to do is tell you that she looks hot in a bikini or a piece of lingerie. Right. It's not going to show you that she's a great model. Well, you're, you're just sort of spinning my head around here, and I'm loving it, but I, one question that you have kind of put in my mind is, if you're not just showing how beautiful they are, and at the same time you're saying that most of them are not professionals, they're coming to you to enter the business or to, to get involved in the advertising trade, that means a lot of that responsibility is on you yep. to, do, to do the posing. and the. It's absolutely on me. Well, I pose every girl that I work with. You know, again, the reality is, and I kind of gave you that description a minute ago, guys, and don't take my word for it. You guys get to talk to a lot of really cool people. So ask some of your guys that do the ads that you see you know, in Cosmo all the time or the ads that you see in Maxim and this and that. And any time it's a product-type ad, especially if it's a national ad campaign, you can bet good money 99.9% .9 of the time when the model walks into the studio, the ad is already designed. Sure. They know how she has to pose, how she has to stand. They even know what kind of expression they want on her face. Okay? It's all done. Sure. Because think about it. You know, on a national ad campaign level, on big ads, and even on a regional ad campaign level, forget the cost of production. Forget the model's cost, the photographer's cost, hair, makeup, lighting, you know, all that kind of stuff. But just think about the cost for either the time on TV or the space in a magazine. Okay? Think about those costs. There's a lot of money in the line. So contrary to what you see in the movies, when you see the fashion models dancing around with a fan blowing in their hair, you know, you gotta remember, <laughs> that's an editorial shoot. That's editorial. It's a different ball game. Sure. Okay. In commercial advertising, the acting, the modeling takes place in the face. It's the expression. All the rest of it, you know, if it's a print ad, the model's going to be given a pose. And I do. When I do a portfolio with a girl, I pose her through 99% of what we shoot. If I'm doing something that requires activity, like if I want to make it look like the girl's dancing or that, 
I give her kind of this range of motion that I want her to go through. Because okay. I'll be the first to play too. And, and I'm, I'm a lot more structured than probably a lot of guys. I will admit, part of the things that I like about working in the studio, I'm a control freak. In the studio, I'm God. <laughs> because let's face it, if you guys ever taken a picture, you know that once you push the button, it's your fault anyway. It doesn't matter if the girl blinked, moved, the wind blew her hair. You know, you can't sit there and say, oh, well, you know, the makeup artist sucked. <laughs> you pressed the button, okay? <laughs> so in a studio, I'm a control freak, and I admit to that. So, and I want perfection. In my particular shoots, I do all the posing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a collaboration. So if a girl's got an idea, you know, absolutely, I love that. I'll work with that. Even if her idea sucks, it's a starting point. So I can take her idea and, and we can mold it and we can build it. Sure. To answer your question, which I, again, I know I apologize for taking a long way around your question, but part of that question with, you know, well, are the girls learning the right or wrong things? Part of the downside of doing this TFP stuff, and I get a lot of these girls, they go out on these websites that will go unnamed. And they wander around for six months or so, sending off all the offers to do nudes and fetish and bondage photography. And they find a couple nice guys to work with. Then they do some stuff. And finally, they realize that for all their efforts, they're not models. They haven't done anything other than take a bunch of pictures. Getting in front of a camera does not make you a model. You're not a model till you make money. Because <laughs> it's business. Businesses exist for one reason and one reason only. And that is to profit. And that's my take. And I, I do. I, I take a very hard line to that. I see these websites that we're referring to as awesome, absolutely awesome communities for amateurs and advanced amateurs to hone their craft. But the fact of the matter is, and I think you guys, if you look at it objectively, you can appreciate it. The people that benefit the most in those communities are the photographers, not the model. I was just going to say that. So, you know, what you have here is you have a lot of guys with cameras, some good, some bad, but they're trying to hone that. They're trying to develop their skills. And the best part of it is what you have is this plethora of options and choices of models, you know, that are willing to get in front of the camera and, you know, be subjects, be very willing subjects. So it's a, it's a great place for somebody that's going to start. And that's one thing I do is I send a lot of people that contact me and say, oh, I want to learn how to take pictures like you. It's like, start here, you know, because I'm very old school in the sense that if you want to get good at taking pictures, you got to screw up a lot. Sure. <laughs> and you learn from your mistakes. I'm very good at that. So, you know, if you're going right, to screw up a lot, you got to find opportunities to screw up. So there's a great place to go get subjects. Yeah. That's great. Let's go in a little bit of a different direction for a second. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about your approach in the studio. You said you, you'd like to be in total control. What kind of sure. lighting environments and equipment do you like to have around you when you're doing this type of photography? Uh, I mean, it depends a little bit, but, you know, the certain reality, as much as I, I'm always very flattered when people look at my stuff and say, oh, you know, you're so creative and this and that. Hey, I'm male and I have an ego. I love it. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, there, there's a couple realities that come into play. And the first thing I always explain to people when I get those compliments is thank you, but everything that you see on my website took three people to do it at a minimum three people. I don't get all the credit. I, mean, I learned many, many years ago in my career that you can only get out of a picture what you put in front of the camera. So if you're not working with a top-notch makeup artist and hairstylist, if you don't have a model that really not necessarily knows what she's doing, but is coming to the shoot with the right attitude and the right work ethic, you're not going to get a great picture. So for me, that's the first thing. And I work very hard to create that environment before we even talk about equipment. As far as equipment goes, from a lighting standpoint, I kind of use a mixed set as far as strobes go. I use a few Pro Photo Compacts, which are pretty much my main. I'm a light freak, which I'm sure you can kind of figure out from my images. An average studio strobe shot for me with a model, I'm using anywhere from like 
six at a minimum to as many as 12 strobes. Oh, wow. um, so the pro photos are kind of my main lights because you can't beat the color temperature of those strobes. And you don't have to do custom white balancing. If you set a D200 at 5600K on its color temperature scale, you're getting the whitest white you have ever seen in an image anywhere off of those pro photo strobes. So hopefully they'll send me a check for saying that, but it's true. They're great. <laughs> Uh, and then I use Photogenics, the 1250s and 12500s that I have. I use those for the rest of my strobe lighting. The Photogenics I actually was very pleased with, but I'll also go ahead and I'll hit them in the sense that I'm just very disappointed that when they do die, it's the circuit board that dies in them. And unfortunately, yeah. Photogenic really hits your hard hair. Uh, you know, a Photogenic head you pay just over $500 for to replace the circuit board. They charge you almost $400. So it's like buying a new head. So I finally said enough's enough, and that's why lately I've been kind of, as the photogenic guys, I've been converting to the pro photos. And the color temperature, in my opinion, can't beat it. They're, they're absolutely awesome. I love them. So that's, that's my strobe lighting. If I were to tell you guys, pick like your three favorite pictures on my website, I'd be willing to bet that the pictures that you will pick have been taken with fluorescent lighting. Ah, interesting. And here's the part where I promised you I'd blow your mind, okay? <laughs> When I say fluorescent lighting, I'm not talking about the $500 flicker-free lights that are being used for video production these days. I'm talking about literally some very homemade equipment. Oh, this is awesome. Looks really cool because I put a lot of effort into it, but it's literally made with 99-cent fluorescent tubes right out of the ceiling fixture. I shoot color and black and white with it. I have done a lot of testing and a lot of playing and a lot of tweaking and figured out a good color temperature setting. I have also figured out, figured out how to beat the flicker rate because anybody that's highly versed in lighting is going to come right back and say, he's full of crap because if you're shooting color, the flicker rate's going to kill you every time, and it will unless you make the right accommodations. <laughs> so you have to do a little research on flicker rates. Okay? I love the fluorescent lighting because regardless of what kind of lighting you're using, and I've seen a lot of people do some cool stuff with fluorescence, and I've seen a lot of people do some really, really disastrous stuff with fluorescence. But the key to fluorescent for me is that since I am such a freak about lighting, I'm all about being able to see the light. Even when I'm shooting with strobes, yeah, you know, obviously I can't see the light in that one ten thousandth of a second that that strobe pops. But the great part about digital is immediately I'm looking at that image on the back of the camera, and I'm looking for the subtleties of each of those lights that I put into place to make sure that it's performing its intended task. What's kind of fun with the fluorescent lighting is it, it gives you a very, very different quality than strobes, but even more so is you, you can see it at all times. So even just the slightest tilt of the head or turn of the face, you immediately see the impact before you even, you know, press the button. So I have, for a lot of my headshot work and a lot of the beauty shot work, which that's why I made the bet because most people don't go grab some of the really wild, crazy, artistic beauty shots that I have and say, oh, I love this. <laughs> and those images, actually, if you look at the catch lights in the eye, which I'm sure somebody along the way has already told you guys that you probably know this, the easiest way to figure out how a picture was lit is look at the eyes. But if you look at the catch lights in the eyes, you'll notice that they are long, vertical, and thin. They're not dots. It's literally it's fluorescent lighting. I was going to say, there's one on, um, if you go to the portfolio, uh, I guess, homepage section of it, there's a woman in a... Um, That's great. That looks like a combat helmet or something. <laughs> That's so cool. Yep. It is, and that's that's what, that woman. Believe it or not, that woman is she's from Nashville, Tennessee, and she is a real life U.S. Army Apache helicopter pilot. Really, so that's actually a U.S. government issue helmet there. <laughs> okay, uh, but yeah, no, seriously, she she gets out. We just shot that picture about two months ago. She gets out of the military a little bit later this year, and she is in the process of kind of building up for her next career. 
Uh, and I'm proud to say, actually, she called me two days ago. The very first agency that she submitted to, she got signed with, and she's already been booked for her first print job next week. In that's Nashville. great. Oh, so, that's great. Um, I'm, like, thrilled because, you know, that's a success story. The girl came, did a book. But, yeah, that, that is with the fluorescent lighting setup that I'm talking about. You know, not only the front lighting, it's very obvious. There's two fluorescent light strips that are vertical strips. Um, but I'm sure you can imagine if you look at the helmet, there are also two lights slightly to the back and the side, which are creating a nice white highlights down the side of the helmet. That is cool. Um, so now do you modify those or do you just use them like bare tubes? Oh, literally bare tubes. The only modification is like the catch, the lights that you're seeing in the front. I've actually created these fixtures with brackets. So imagine, and I'm not kidding, like, you know, that you go into Sears hardware and for $10, you can buy the hanging shop lights. <laughs> okay. And then you buy the 99 cent tubes. So I I've created with brackets these fixtures that sit on a stand, and they're incredibly lightweight, which is the best part of it. But by creating the brackets, I can lock them in place. They don't swing around. I don't have to worry about the bowls falling off. So on each side, it's actually six tubes. It's three of wow. those fixtures in a tiny little arc on each side. But the whole thing on a light stand doesn't weigh more than about 12 pounds. So it's actually very easy to pick it up and, and move it around. And literally, the, the only thing I do for you know safety and liability uh, is I use clear cable ties oh, yeah. around the top of the fixture just in the event that a tube would, you know, kind of loosen up so that I'm not going to be shooting in the studio one day and have a tube, you know, drop down <laughs> to the floor, that kind of thing. Uh, so I guess that was about a year in the making in the sense that the very first time I did it, I literally just happened to have two fixtures sitting in the studio and decided to play one day and did some black and white stuff. And it was kind of cool. And, you know, it's like every so often I went back and played with it. And then I got gutsy enough to try adding some color. And that's when, of course, I got really frustrated because that's when the flicker rate really became an issue. And I then played with it some more because it was like it was close enough that it's like, oh, there's something here. So it was about a year kind of in the process of, you know, getting it down to where I was comfortable enough that I use it consistently. Plus, you know, there's always that little element of, you know, appearances do count. <laughs> you know, people feel a little more comfortable when they're seeing something that looks like it's supposed to be that way as opposed to, yeah, this, you know, light fixture from the ceiling is just hanging on a stand here. You know, <laughs> um, you know, you walk into it now, it's kind of like walking into a tanning bed. You just don't get a tan. I also got to tell you, you guys should feel like really, really honored because one of the cool things I'll admit, you know, it, it's fun to watch this. I checked the traffic logs on my website. There are a lot of discussion forums. Even right now, there's a discussion forum in polling where people debate what kind of lighting it is I use. And, of course, they're all convinced that it's, you know, strip lights with softboxes. Oh, that's awesome. Because, and, and I'll admit, I'm a little devious. So I'm, I'm being honest. You guys get the fruit first, okay? I have a lot of behind-the-scenes pictures on my website. I don't ever show that lighting setup in the behind-the-scenes pictures only because <laughs> it doesn't look like super high-tech. So here are these people out there debating what kind of strobes I'm using and what kind of soft boxes. I'm thinking if only they knew it was for us to write to, they would shoot them. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Um, but yeah, honestly, that's, that's all it is. So I just never photographed it. It doesn't look cool. It looks cooler now that I've you know put all the brackets together in that, but it still doesn't look that cool. That, this reminds me of uh, one of the other photographers that we had on our show. He did some shots with Sting and um, Robert Plant, and he was using a ring light that he had made out of you know a hunk of wood and the makeup mirror lights. Oh yeah, uh huh. And, and it was yeah. kind of like, at that moment I was like, all right, you know, I should not feel embarrassed shooting with average people. Yeah, if, if this guy can shoot, you know, two of probably the biggest names in music with with the light that he made for about sixty bucks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh heck yeah! 
Yeah, you could, well, I mean, since we're talking fluorescents, you could do that same thing. Go out and buy one of those old-fashioned kitchen ceiling lamps that use the 24-inch round fluorescent tubes. There you go. Just pull the ballast out of it and hang it, and there's your ring light. Same thing. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure you guys know, because I saw on your website that you interviewed Paul Buff. I mean, uh, White Lightning just came out with a really cool ring light that's a lot cheaper than, you know, the big boy ring lights, and I'll, I'll bet you it's a really cool light. I mean, I haven't had a chance to, to play with it or really see its results. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we we actually have just put up a review on that the Alien B version of that light. Oh, really? They're cool. Did yeah, you guys, actually. Did you guys get to play with it? It's fun. <laughs> I'm jealous. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, I, def, I definitely love them in that sense. But, yeah, I mean, the moral to the story is, you know, it's not the equipment. Yeah, equipment's cool. And, yes, equipment can facilitate cool things. But you can have the best equipment in the world if you don't know what to do with it. You know, this business is about seeing, and when it comes to the lighting, I think that's where a lot of photographers, especially a lot of new photographers, really shoot themselves in the foot. You know, they do a lot of reading early on, and let's face it, you pick up a photography magazine, and, and no disrespect, you look at your website, you know, you learn a lot about equipment. Absolutely. And it's like, oh, so-and-so uses this, and so-and-so uses that. And so you figure, cool, I buy the equipment, I can do what this guy does. Well, yeah, you can do it, but if you can't see like he sees, you're not going to do it. You know, one of the first things I tell people, if I do a workshop or, you know, if I do a consultation or things like that, I'll tell people, go to Walmart. Usually at any Walmart for like $2.99, you can buy like 24 by 36 inch pieces of white foam core. And I tell them, buy like four of those. And then go outside in the shade and start learning how to do lighting. <laughs> that's, that's actually, that's great advice. And they look at me like I'm nothing, like I'm dead serious. You give me four pieces of white foam core, put me in the shade, I'll make some of the coolest light you've ever seen with those four pieces of foam core. Because... I've learned to see the light. You know, it doesn't matter what equipment you're playing with. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter how cool a subject is. If you don't pay attention to the details, your picture will be lacking. And hence what I said before about you only get out of the picture what you put in front of the camera. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes people make with lighting. Because let's face it, lighting can be overwhelming. I mean, I'm sure you guys, since you, you, know, you guys shoot and you do things, you know, it, it, can, it can drive you nuts. If you don't learn how to see it from the beginning, you'll always essentially be beating your head against the wall trying to get it right. Because it's not so much about the equipment or the technique, or ratios, or anything like that. I, every now and then somebody will ask me, what kind of lighting ratios do you use? And I look at them like, ratios? What are you kidding? <laughs> and I was like, you're right in asking the question, because if you pick up the book, it's going to talk about ratios, but I don't remember the last time I ever even thought about a ratio. I realized that, yeah, I know what a two-to-one lighting ratio was on a portrait. I get it, but ultimately I don't care about that two-to-one in my end result. I want an end result that's pleasing. And if it happens to be two to one or if it happens to be three to one, it doesn't matter. It just has to be right, visually. I'm guessing you're not one of those guys that uh, is real big on metering then. No, in fact, I, I have two really expensive, uh, you know, flash studio strobes in my studio. Neither one of them work. The batteries are dead. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, part of this comes from my photojournalism background. I don't even use the meters in my cameras if I'm shooting outdoors. Really? Um, well, as a photojournalist back in the film days, you had to know how to expose with or without a meter. Plus, if you go back to those days, the first thing to go in almost any camera was the meter. It wasn't the shutter. It was the meter. The meters were horrible. Ah. So it wasn't uncommon, you know, to have a camera with no working meter because you don't want to buy a whole new camera just because the meter died. Sure. And as a newspaper photographer, you would learn how to, you know, determine exposure. Um, so even in the digital realm, I mean, those are things every photographer should know, whether your meter's working or not. And one of the great things about digital, I'm sure you've heard the phrase chimping, you know, <laughs> you get to chimp right away. So, you know, I walk into a situation, I look at the scene, even in a studio, I mean, it, it, studio's four walls. So even though I'm being creative and I may be doing a lighting setup that I've never done before, I know my strobes, 
I know that at certain distances and certain settings in the strobe, approximately, you know, where it's going to hit as far as an f-stop is concerned. So I, I can usually be pretty close in terms of a starting point for exposure, and then I'm going to chimp it and see where I'm at. Because anybody that doesn't rely on the histograms and especially the, you know, the, the highlight blowout indicators and the histograms and that kind of stuff, you're only selling yourself short. To me, that's one of the greatest things in the world about digital, is especially since I am a lighting freak. I do things with lighting that back in the film days I never could have done. It would have taken me hours of metering and tons of Polaroids to figure yeah, it out. that's true. Now it's, you yeah. know, it's a couple minutes and you're there. That's a great point. And you know you're there. The best part is you shoot the picture and you walk out knowing, I got it, for sure. And aside from that, you've probably never been able to do all the experimenting that you did on those fluorescent lights and get the results that uh, you no, got. It would have been an absolute nightmare. So, yeah, <laughs> it, it, absolutely. It would have been completely hit or miss, completely. Well, we've been at this for an hour, and I'm sure we could keep going, Joe, just picking your brain. We might have to have you on again to get some more inside secrets on homemade lighting and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> But, well, we do kind of have a little tradition on the show where we ask some quick rapid-fire questions and see if we can get a one- or two-word answer out of you. You up for it? Yeah, go for it. Okay, cool. You want to start us off there, Ed? Sure. Well, since you said you're uh, into gadgets and things like that, let's go with favorite website. Favorite photo website? Probably Rob Galbraith. Okay. Which I haven't looked at in a long time. But All right, cool. How about your favorite lens? Favorite lens, uh, definitely a 105 2.8. Nice. Favorite location to shoot? Wow. Um, <laughs> South Beach, Miami. All right. There's a good one. What would be your favorite light modifier if you had to pick one? How boring that way. Just a soft box. I don't get into the grids and the grills and yeah. all that kind of stuff that much. Medium, large? Yeah. Uh, large. I use the big, like, you know, four foot by six foot boxes. Awesome. Big ones. You can walk in them. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a favorite magazine? We talked about websites. How about magazine? Oh, gosh. Favorite magazine? I'll, I'll admit, I like getting Shutterbug every month. Okay, cool. Just to see, you know, what kind of new gadgets and that are out there. Yeah. Very good. No, no, I have one. I assume that you, uh, I like to shoot with music in the background. What's your favorite music to shoot to? Good question. I, it's, I believe what they call top 40 urban contemporary, kind of mindless stuff. You know, it's like whatever's pop hit on the radio right now, a little bit of hip hop, a little bit of pop, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's, but it's background noise. Right. Um, I listen to one of those stations who, you know, I won't frame the station. It's one of those stations that they play the same five songs all day long. <laughs> so it's kind of mindless. Don't have to think about it. And actually what I do, like I mentioned before, having a pair of some dance, if I want to go to dance, I actually turn the radio off. I'll tell you why. Absolutely. Because if, if you, you know, people make the mistake and I see, I see guys tell girls this all the time, bring your favorite music. Yeah. It's not a good plan to have the girl on the set jamming even in her head to the song that's on the radio because what's the model supposed to be thinking about when she's on the set expression so even if i want a girl to dance i'm going to choreograph it hey they do that in the music videos don't they so i'm going to choreograph and i'm going to tell look these are the moves i want you to do and then i'm going to you know and i'll sit there and i'll make an ass out of myself <laughs> and you know in front of her and i'll do the dance with her and kind of get the rhythm going and you know snap in the fingers and so she kind of gets her own internal rhythm going, and she's thinking about what I want her to think about. Because if I give her a song, she's thinking about the yeah. lyrics, she's grooving to the song, and it's not necessarily what I need in the picture. You know, it's a matter of kind of controlling it. So actually, the irony of it is, is I do play the music, but it's kind of low in the background, and if I'm actually going to have the, the girl dance, first thing I do is turn the music off. All right. We kind of set the rhythm and, and give her a little choreographed kind of thing that we want her to do. And if I see her do something spontaneous that looks cool, I'll you know I'll play with that. I'll change it. I'll work with that. But. So if you want to see Joe dance, swing by a studio sometime. And <laughs> That's it. Yep. But sure you, trust me, it's not worth the price you'll pay. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, no matter what, you've got to check out Joe's website. It's at joeedelman.com. That's J-O-E-E-D-E-L-M-A-N.com. And if you're a photographer, absolutely check out Joe's images. They're amazing. You can try to guess his lighting setups and all that sort of thing. Play along at But you've also got some really (laughs) great stuff for models and, and just some information about modeling and how to get ready for a shoot and that sort of thing. So it's it's just a tremendous resource. So thanks for that, Joe. Well, thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Yeah, and we'll provide links to your website and to some other things that we talked about in the show notes. But I wanted cool. to thank you for being on the show. Absolutely a great time. You are very welcome. I, uh, I have fun. Well, that's all we have for this episode of Light Source, the brightest podcast on the Internet. Be sure to check out the show notes at studiolighting.net for the things that we talked about on today's show. And there you can also find links about our photography and keep up with the stuff that we've been shooting. And don't forget you can send us feedback or questions about the show to studiolighting at gmail.com. And we'll try to answer those questions on the show or in the lighting questions section on studiolighting.net. You can also get feedback on your photography in our Flickr group, which is at www.flickr.com slash groups slash light source till next time take care check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com photocastnetwork.com um, So that's going to be really interesting to hear. Uh, but first, Bill, you have someone new to... In, uh, but first, Bill, you have someone new to... New to inter- you were just making this the worst editing. But third... Hi, my name is Ed Hidden. I mean, image inspector... <laughs> Let me do that part again. Sorry. What the heck is... It's a bottle of wine I had tonight. I mean, not, not bottle. <laughs> bottle. Oh my God. Wait a minute, glass. I meant, I meant a glass. <laughs> <laughs>